I don't even know where to start today. So much stuff going on in the world, <laughs> especially in drinking. California's burning to the ground. So I don't know what we're going to get this year on grape-wise. That fire is out of control. That fire, it's what, the ninth largest in history now? No, it's got to be the largest. California? No, it's largest. You think it's largest? I figured the St. Thomas one last year would have been the largest. No, uh, it was the beginning of last week when they announced that it was the largest in California's history. That's crazy. They've had some of the largest fires in history, and it's only been like, most of them have been the last couple of years. Uh, this fire is insane it is 10 times the size of paris france that's crazy i saw something where it said it was larger than los angeles county not the city but the county yeah. 10 times the size of paris i didn't even put that out like you just gotta hit areas and hope to god the wind doesn't pick up and blow it a different direction the next day yeah what i read it was 40 something percent contained yeah, and I wonder what that means, like contain, like they killed one area of the fire, so it stopped here, now they got to go to another area and stop it over there. They probably have to, yeah, you probably have to get ahead of it, head it off, do some controlled burns, Yeah. Um, use a lot of the fire retardant that they have, they kind of spray over the field to kind of get it to turn, maybe they're trying to get it to corral to a river, maybe. Yeah, like when we were at the gorge in that one fire, they were pushing it towards the gorge so that it couldn't jump over and burn everything else. But the one thing, yeah, I think... And I never think of it this way until recently. But when they say the fire is, you know, 10 times the size of Paris, it's the area that's been burned because the fire itself probably isn't that big. It can only be like a massive ring on the outside. So because it's not like the center of it's still burning like crazy because it's already burned everything to the ground. So they're just fighting that outer edge of the fire everywhere because it's moving so fast. True. I think it's a pretty wooded area that's burning. Yeah. So it's not like a brush fire, what we got at the gorge. No. This is some pretty... It's a forested area. <laughs> yeah. It's some pretty hard to put out stuff. Yeah. That's unfortunate, you know, and hope for the best and hopefully they put it out. But how many more times are they going to keep having fires up there before they finally just let the state turn to ash? <laughs> I mean, it's nuts. Well, they said that uh, they're actually testing positive for smoke in New York from it now. Yeah, the plume has gone that far. That's unbelievable. So uh, I know that I read a thing where all the Napa Valley producers got together and had a meeting and talked about this. And I guess they're not seeing the smoke, but the Sonoma people are getting the smoke horrible. Really? Yep. Yeah. I wonder how much it's going to affect the wines in the following year. Because I know last year I've tried some samples from some 2017 and... Uh, uh, there's like almost no smoke taint in any of them because they pretty much pricked, uh, picked it pre-fire. But uh, anything that came afterward, it's potent. I'd bought I'd bought for fun like a bottle that came off of Mount Veeder that these guys barreled. They barrel they made it and barreled it, and they're like, here, try it for fun. Maybe they can like do it as a barbecue wine, and it, it straight tasted like a smoked wine. Actually, probably would be great for a barbecue. I believe it was the 2000 and was the 11 vintage from Sonoma that had all the fires where everything was smoky, had all the smoke taint. I don't remember. I know 2011 was a hard year for me because it was a wet year and a little bit colder. Maybe it was farther back. Maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know now it's going to be, you know, it's like France is getting hit with board, uh, with uh, hail consistently in the Burgundy region. Now it's California is going to be on fire every single year. So... I can see a little smoke taint helping out and not really hurting Cabernets or Cabernet Francs, Merlots. I could see it being brutal on Pinot Noir. It's funny you say that because I was thinking the exact opposite. Because have you ever had certain Pinot Noirs that have that flinty, smoky characteristic from all those crazy charred barrels that they've used sometimes? I've noticed that in a few Burgundy and a couple California wines. See, it's obviously barrel-related, though. See, I like smoky Pinots. I mean, I kind of gravitate towards the Santa Lucia Highlands-style mm -hmm. Pinot, which tends to have that kind of like 
bacon fat, smoky, cherry yeah, characteristic. Meaty characteristic, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not as light-bodied. They're not as burgundy-ish as, you know, the ones you're going to get out of, like, you know, Carneros maybe or Sonoma. Carneros can be a little beefy, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think at this point, a lot of California Pinot is more of a beefier style. The exception of, obviously, would be, like, a Oregon is definitely obviously a little bit tamer, but I like Santa Lu- uh, not Santa Lucia, but Santa Rita Hills is some of my favorite Pinot. I really like the flavor that comes out of that, especially that flinty characteristic I get from most wines down there. It's very distinct to me. Like I could honestly, I think I've sat there with myself and you and Dustin, and uh, every time he opens up a Santa Rita, I can almost be like, it's most likely from there because there's a very specific characteristic coming out of it that I enjoy. It's I don't know. We'll we'll see what this smoke does to all the Pinot in California because it's all being picked relatively soon, if not right now. Now I don't know how many vineyards are actually burning. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, marijuana farms up there that are burning now. Yeah, because that's kind of the the epicenter. It's like Mendocino, Lake County. Yeah. The, the what do they call it? The Green Triangle. <laughs> Em- Emerald Triangle? Emerald Triangle. I think that's right. I think it's the Emerald Triangle. I've heard that term before. That yeah, I think that's must be. What yeah. It is. But I mean the. The Lake County wines that I've had in my life have always been really good. Yeah. I mean, Peter Franis used to do a side project off of there. I don't, that been, it's a label that's not even in existence anymore, I don't think. But he used to do some like Grenaches that were unfiltered that were fantastic from Lake County. Well, I've enjoyed some Lake County wines recently. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if Rock Pile's up in that area, um, but I had a few Lake County Zinfandels that I had liked as well as a couple cabs that I thought were really, really nice because they're not, you know, so big and jammy. It's a little bit lighter and easier. I think Lake County definitely has great potential for the future, if not already there. Well, we'll s- they're obviously going to be starting from scratch after this fire yeah, in a lot, in no a lot of areas. Yeah. I wonder how many vineyards are going to have to be replanted. I mean, I don't think you're even going to know until this is all said and done. I mean, yeah. I, I remember going up to Santa Rosa after the fires last year, and it was six seven months after the fires and it was something post-apocalypto like it yeah. was something uh, it reminded me of something like mad max driving through those like hills behind it like up uh, mark west highway yeah uh went over that one a few months back when i went with my dad and friends and uh, we were there in april and we did the same thing we drove over the mayakamas and you could see where everything is scarred and burned out and black and then we drove through that mark west area and all the divisions were demolished so there was nothing left but Nothing but foundations, hundreds, if not thousands of foundations just there. Everything was gone at this point. So it was just like, wow, how did it roll through this neighborhood, obliterate anything? And then there's a whole subdivision 50 yards away and it missed that. (laughs) There'd there'd be a a house on one side of the street that's perfectly intact. And on the other side of the street, there would be nothing but, like you said, a foundation and a chimney. The chimney. The chimneys all survived. Yeah, that's it. It was creepy. That's crazy, man. It's it's unfortunate that that's what they have to deal with right now especially in those areas but yeah so to everybody out in california you know hope the best for you and hope y'all don't get burned down so speaking of california uh we're gonna switch over to the wine we're drinking today um we're doing a zinfandel today uh we'll talk a little bit about that this one's uh from scarlet uh, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, they told me it's the last remaining Zinfandel on the Rutherford bench in Napa Valley. So this should be big, giant, massive Zinfandel. What is the Rutherford bench? I don't know. Something you lay on, maybe? <laughs> I was just thinking. I was like, I don't know exactly 
I, I, I've never lived up there. I'm sure if I lived up there, it'd be very easy to say, oh, it's this little ridge over here that has yeah. this, that. But I think when you're in Napa driving up, you really don't notice like how much elevation you hit driving through it until you get to the very back end and start to climb a little bit. But as, what I always noticed was uh, like on a map or an elevation chart was it was supposed to look like a lawn chair where Carneros is down at the feet and then Oak Knoll is kind of in the middle of where your legs would be. And then the bench is basically Rutherford and Oakville and then... Obviously, it gets higher going into St. Helena and Calistoga. So think of Napa as like a lawn chair. <laughs> and Rutherford would be the bench the part bench. where your ass is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the right area, apparently. <laughs> now, now you don't see a ton of Zivendel coming out of Napa Valley, though. No, the only Zins that I'm familiar with, uh, I know Paradigm makes one in Oakville. Um, and then the other ones I'm like really familiar with is uh, Rubber Craig makes a few off of Howl Mountain. But for the most part, I don't see any Zinfandel at all left in Napa. I think most of the stuff they get tends to come from Dry Creek or Sonoma. I mean, I know Peter Franis, we just mentioned him mm -hmm. earlier. He has a he gets some Zinfandel from the Brandolin Vineyard. Okay. Where's that uh Napa? Napa. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Somewhere in the Napa area. We gotta work on our geography, bro. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I'll, I'll, tell you what, I'll work on my geography and you work on your pronunciation. Oh, well, though we're both totally but screwed then. <laughs> I can't wait till we get into the history of Zinfandel and I butcher all these Croatian words. <laughs> well, true. I remember telling people that when I got in the wine business, it was more geography than anything else. That, yeah. You know, when I took my SOM courses and I took my CSW, it was literally, it was rivers, mountains, hills. Soil. Yeah. It was geography. Yeah. That's really what That's I was... That's what I, makes the wine. I was learning what town is on this hill and I wasn't... Before I was even learning what grapes were growing there. Yeah. I mean, you know, 80% of all the work for the vine is done in the vineyard. There's probably a few winemakers out there right now like, I do all the work. Yeah. it's Winemakers are like, kind of like, uh, like... What are the, I can't think of what they're called. Wet nurses. They basically guide wine into or guide grapes into being wine. <laughs> I don't know. Weird analogy, but it makes sense to me. <laughs> God, he, you need to start drinking because you're not making sense. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right. So how did you discover this wine? So I had met um, the gentleman who owned Scarlet a long time ago uh, at a trade show. And he was like, yeah, you know, we make this Zinfandel. It's one of the first times we're releasing it. And I figured, okay, why not give it a try? I wasn't a huge Zinfandel fan because most of the Zin I'd always drank was pretty much out of the Central Valley. So I always assumed it was, you know, 16 plus percent alcohol, flabby, not really any characteristic to it, just inexpensive drinking wine. And then uh, I'd opened it up and it was actually a fantastic Zin. It's huge. It's definitely a big wine. It's a ton of body to it. The alcohol is definitely up there, but it has so much flavor to it. So I, he did a fantastic job. And then uh, that kind of got me into starting to try Zinfandels from around California. All right. So what I'm gonna I'm gonna back this up a couple steps. All right. Um, what do you consider a big wine? For the listeners out there, when we say big wine or you say a big wine, I think people out there don't necessarily know what that is, don't understand it. Because what also is what bi is big to me might not be big to you. True. I um I had a sommelier a few months ago post on her social media that she had somebody come in and try and order a wet wine. Okay. <laughs> because they realized that they didn't like dry wines, so they figured they'd order a wet wine. <laughs> and, of course, she has to run right to social media and post it because oh, that was something my God. that... I, the deer in headlights look she must have got from that oh, in the moment. Just, what? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, from a standard person, that might make sense if your whole life you're being told you're having dry wine and nobody told you 
there's sweet wine or dry wine. Yeah, she. This person probably sat down with somebody that they tried a couple wines. They go, okay, this is the style I don't like, and they probably said, okay, that is a dry wine. So tell people you don't want a dry wine. So she might have, or whoever the guest was, probably thought, all right, the opposite of dry. Wet. Wet. I want a wet wine. <laughs> I can see the bells turning <laughs> in her head like, well, what would be the opposite of dry? Yes. Let's see if there's a wet wine around here. But coming from a sommelier standpoint, oh my gosh, like I couldn't imagine somebody dropping that bomb on me. I can't. Yeah. I get some weird stuff at the winery from time to time that I like, but there's definitely some dumb things I've never heard that would be hilarious. I, I, I would think that some, like somebody be playing a joke on me. Like I'd be like, all right, where's the camera? Is there like two master Psalms in the booth next door to like, get ready to pop up? Yeah. Like, ha we got you. Meanwhile, this poor person is just standing there <laughs> looking at you for like guidance. And all you got to do is try not to laugh and go, no, but seriously. And, and, and then you kind of go, okay, let me see if they actually said that. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch what you said. And you have to make them say it a second time. <laughs> yeah. A wet wine. Oh God. Oh no. So no, so a big wine to me is something that's real jammy, like um, almost like fruits like boysenberry or sauces, like uh, if you had like a cherry pie flavored, um, any type of jammy flavor, strawberry jam, preserves, things like that, or if almost it's a little pruney. Um, and then once you bring the alcohol up, it physically feels heavy in my mouth. So for instance, the alcohol on this thing's up around 16%. Um, yeah, it's 15.8%. So it actually physically feels heavy in my mouth. Like it's like comparing skim milk to whole milk. So to me, a big bodied wine would be whole milk versus like a Pinot Noir or white wine would be more in the skim milk kind of area. It just feels lighter. So when I say a big wine, I'm usually speaking of high alcohol, tons of jammy flavors to it. So that's, that's big wine to me. So sometimes Cabernet, but not all Cabernets are big. Um, but yeah, definitely Zinfandel tends to fall into my big wine area just because of the alcohol and body that it can produce. So essentially you're saying that it had a big flavor in combination with big alcohol. Yeah, big flavor, big body and alcohol. And uh, high viscosity. Yeah, exactly. I worked for a restaurant company. I remember us training our new servers and us talking about viscosity. And they said, uh, how did they put it? They said, uh, uh, like uh, Coca-Cola is lighter bodied than cough syrup. And both of those are significantly more heavy body than water. Yeah. So if you kind of think about that weight in your mouth when they go in there, and wine is that way. I mean, there's certain wines that go in your mouth and they're very, very light. You get those Vino Verdes, they're just like, you know, almost yeah. picks, up, picks you up a little bit. Yeah. Whereas you get something like a, a port in your mouth or you get something along the lines yeah. of like a Sauterne. And it's like heavy and weighted. Yeah. It's And then it kind of, you don't, it's something you would sip versus like, drinking really quick so you know if you have a white wine and you're sitting there you could be surprised about how fast you can go through a bottle or even a glass in that moment but this this wine right here sitting here this is something i'm going to sip for a while because i can i can feel the alcohol when i when i breathe this in i can physically feel it on the back of my nose burning a little bit now is that a good thing or a bad thing Depends. I think this wine, for the most part, can mask it with how big of a wine that it is. But if this was a Pinot Noir with this alcohol content, it'd be really, really difficult to drink. Or, you know, really fun, depending on how much you drink of it at the end. <laughs> yeah, there was a guy that used to come into a wine shop near my place, and he used to literally come and go, I want your highest alcohol wine. <laughs> Good for that guy. Yeah. Did it you was give so him funny. pour every single time? <laughs> I mean, he, he wanted something. He wanted more bang for his buck. He's somebody who really enjoyed drinking wines he was somebody that was just starting to drink wines but he was on a limited budget and he also realized uh, that he wanted to if he had a choice of getting two six packs or a bottle of wine 
he wanted to make sure that he got the right yeah. uh, mental enhancement <laughs> for <laughs> for uh, his bucks. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. So of course we gave him a lot of Zivendels. I mean, of course he got a lot of Zin. He never got Pinot Noir. Yeah. He got some uh, blends. He got some Spanish wines. Yeah, it's it's and then the crazy thing about that is I wonder what his drinking style is today. Because if you're starting him on Zinfandel, where does he go from there? Because honestly, most of the wines he's going to be drinking from here on out are just going to get lighter and lighter compared to what he's drinking. It's like if you started drinking stouts as beer right out of the gate. You know, how do you go down to enjoying pilsners or lagers? I mean, I went to full-bodied wines very, very fast. Did I mean, one of the f- first few wines I remember buying on my own and drinking on my own was the uh, Beaujolais Village from Louis Jadot. <laughs> I mean, it was easy drinking. It was fruity. I didn't know anything about it. It was easy to spot in a shelf, and it seemed fancy because it said Beaujolais Village. Is this is this Niveau? Or? No, 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 oh, no. Okay, so actually Beaujolais. Yeah, this is just the regional Beaujolais that you can buy. Oh, okay. like so I forgot how much it was, but this was like early 90s. I just remember it was kind of, it was light-bodied, a little fruity. Uh-huh. Um, back then, everything kind of tasted the same. And then, which is funny, is that I discovered Zivendel. Really? And it was one of those things that was like, oh, now I understand. This is big. It's round. It's juicy. It's I can't just chug it down like no problem. Yeah. Like this is a night. Like I had this thing was I always had to have one full glass of water for every glass of wine I had. And it's okay. actually a great rule of thumb to just to keep yourself from getting. Yeah, hungover. absolutely. Yeah. I've always every time people ask me about whether it's headaches, hangovers, or anything, I said, honestly, you can cure most of it by having a glass of water with every glass of wine. It may not, it'll definitely mitigate the factors a little bit. It may not necessarily cure it, but it definitely goes a long way in helping that. I mean, wine hangovers are some of the worst hangovers you can get. Oh, absolutely. You have to keep hydrated, especially drinking those big, heavy wines. Yeah. Especially because, you know, like, for instance, we're drinking this, this Zinfandel that's, you know, roughly 16%, and, uh, Versus when we were drinking the white wine, which was almost 12%. And we can go through that and have a nice little buzz versus this one. You have a glass of it, and you're going to feel it right at the end of it. I mean, I always said that I prefer lower alcohol wines because I could drink more of them. I mean, I love to drink. I like to socialize. I like yeah. to go out with my friends. And sometimes if you drink these 16% alcohol wines, 17% alcohol wines, yeah, you're done. I'm the same way when I go out and have some beers. You know, I like to uh, sit down and have a good Pilsner with somebody because if I start drinking double, triple IPAs, I'm going to have one, two beers at the most and be like, all right, well, I feel full and now I'm drunk. <laughs> but it does make sense. You know, you come home from a long day and I'm not going to sit here and have long form conversation by myself. <laughs> well, then again, <laughs> I, I there's, typically do anyway. There's places for that you can go to where <laughs> doctors will let you do that. <laughs> That's why I have a microphone now. Yeah, you're right. So maybe, maybe that's the difference between us and crazy people. Just put a mic in front of them, and uh, they're no longer crazy. It's not talking to yourself. It's a podcast. <laughs> it's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just diagnosed a whole new form of crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, you could be completely crazy and just speaking to a mic. But you come home at night and you sit outside and you just want to have a scotch before you go to bed. You want to sit there and have that whiskey and just sip on two fingers of whiskey and just enjoy a fire, enjoy the nice evening. Mm-hmm. And I guess a big Zimmerdale can fill that. That, that need or that that fire inside of you just you want to have something i don't want to drink a whole bottle i just want to have a glass and enjoy it and not and have a nice little buzz after a glass yeah 
And then, you know, I mean, I guess the nice thing is with certain brands, especially this one with the natural cork, if you have the Coravin, then you can make that bottle last versus, you know, you open it, you have one glass and like, crap, I don't want to have any more. Now you got to shelve it and hope it doesn't go bad over the next few days. All right. So do you want to explain to people what a Coravin is? Because I know people even in the wine business that don't know what a Coravin is. Fair enough. So uh, Coravin was invented for basically... I guess, pouring fancy wines by the glass. Um, so you could have an awesome $200 bottle or whatever. And basically, it's just a device with a needle on it that goes through a cork uh, and blasts nitrogen uh, into the bottle and pushes the wine out so that hopefully, if you do it right, it doesn't introduce any oxygen into the bottle. And therefore, you can enjoy a bottle of wine all the way to the end of it without it going bad over a relatively long period of month. And I've heard people say it lasts anywhere up to six months. Um, I've used yours a few times and one for our winery. And, you know, depending on who uses it, you can get a few weeks to a few months out of it. It just depends on how well they use it. But it definitely does work. And it's a really cool device to have. It's also like $300 right now. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that when you give me a new little toy or a new device, I want to play with it. I want to experiment with it. I want to see it. Like, I'm just that kind of person. Like, so I got my Coravin and I grabbed a great bottle of wine, tried to figure out how to use it first, got it going, poured a little glass out of it, poured in a little glass out of it again, and another little sip just because mm -hmm. I was playing with it. And then I was like, all right, let's see how this works. Like, see how well it works. And I put the wine sitting upright on the back of my, kind of next to the stove. Just <laughs> sat it right there. The right just, place for that to be. Yeah. You know, <laughs> honestly, the way an average person would do it. You know, the, the, average, the average person is not going to go lay it down in their cooler at 62 degrees or anything. I mean, they're going to literally keep it at home on the counter. So I waited about, I don't know, like three or four days, and I poured a glass out of it. And it tasted fantastic. Yeah. Then I wait another three or four days, did it again, and now I say about maybe a third of the bottle is gone. And then I let it sit for probably about a week and a half, two weeks. Rinse and repeat. The wine over the first three weeks did not lose any nose or flavor. After about, I don't know, a month, I was down to about uh, the last, I'd say, quarter of a bottle. I went ahead and pulled the cork and just poured that in a glass. After about a month, that nose was pretty gone. It's funny you say the thing about the nose, because when I did my Coravin over a good month period, I noticed the same thing. I didn't lose flavor, but the nose became real dull. The wine was spot on. In fact, actually, the wine, I think, was drinking better after almost, almost like it was like a slow age or something. Yeah. It actually was drinking much better, I think, after four weeks that it had slowly opened up or something. Yeah. But yeah, I, after sitting in my glass for an hour or two, and I couldn't get any nose out of it, it was so muted, but the wine tasted fantastic. I wonder if that has something to do with the gas, because I've used nitrogen for some of our kegs before, and I actually stopped using nitrogen on pushing our kegs out, because it it leaves a almost like a sweet characteristic to it, and I, I don't know how to explain it without being around a keg but if i poured from an argon keg versus our nitrogen keg there's a very noticeable difference on the nose it almost sweetens it a little bit and not a good sweetness almost like a rotting fruit sweetness and i was like that's really weird and i did it on a few other kegs and i noticed it was the same once i switched to argon i didn't get that anymore but at the very end of the keg if it's been there long enough for our tasting room the nose definitely becomes a little more muted but the wine tastes the same so i'm wondering what's going on there with argon and maybe how it affects a nose in some way. Maybe Because that's what I'm pretty sure Corvin uses argon. It might be nitrogen. I, I could be wrong, but... Maybe we get a gas guy on someday. 
I mean, that could go a whole lot of different ways, right? depending on one of our friends and their gas guys. Well, I we got, I got a buddy of mine who's actually an anesthesiologist, and he just calls oh, himself a he calls the gas himself, guy. Yeah, you're like, you're like, so what do you do for a living? He's like, I'm a gas man. All right, that's always his line. That's a great way to put it. But I'm sure, I'm sure you never know. I'm sure there's wine people out there that know. There's got to be a guy who owns a. Uh, an argon nitrogen nitrous oxide company, like a gas company, mm-hmm. and um, he drinks wine, and he'd come on the show and talk to us about it. Yeah, that'd be fun actually, because then we could have a cool little like chemistry chat too about argon and nitrogen. <laughs> or maybe you can actually sometime bottle two bottles of the same wine with two different gases, and we could taste them on the show together. That's not a bad idea. I think. I wonder how I could go about doing that. I mean, I could use obviously to fill the bottle with two different gases, but I'm wondering what the difference would be of using like a Corvin you know, with different style of gases, but you can't since you have to buy the little cartridges. So anyway, anyways, uh, it's one of those things where ever since I've had it, I've been able to drink a lot, a lot better wines that I've wanted to buy the glass instead of waiting for the right time to open something up, which has been nice. So it's a cool little invention. All right. So his wines are called Scarlet Wines. Is that the name of the actual company? Uh, no, it's McGaugh family, M-C-G-A-H. That's there. Scarlet was, I believe, his daughter, and that's the girl on the label. It's a real beautiful label. It does say produced and bottled by Scarlet Wines. Okay. Yeah, because I know it's McGaugh family wines. They do a uh, couple cabs. They have this Zinfandel. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I've had a Petit Verdot from them, and I'm almost positive they do a Grenache now and a Sau Blanc as well. So, I mean, the label's beautiful. I mean, it's it's white and gold, and it's got, like, a lady laying kind of, like, looks like she's laying down maybe, and her hair is just flowing everywhere, but her hair is, like, turning looks into... like tree branches, kind of? Yeah. Well, it's grapevines. Grapevines, okay. Because those are actually grape leaves. Oh, uh, yeah, so in. it is. It's grapevines. The obvious thing it should have been. <laughs> right. See, there you go. There's right there on the side. It says McGaugh family. Yep. Yeah. But, so, uh, yeah, so he used to drink their cab a bunch, and then once he introduced himself and told me to try this in, I was like, why not? I'm not going to ever turn down a wine unless it's in a box, but even then I won't turn it down. <laughs> so that's actually something that's very interesting that a lot of people don't know that we probably go a little more in-depth on it another time, but produced and bottled by, bottled by... Cellared. Uh, yeah, vinted. Yeah, there's. it's actually one of the... It's required by law in your bottle, and you can get so much information about a winery just by the couple words that are listed there. Yeah. I mean, if we even want to do a little detail on it. So I'll even go down to the alcohol content. If Whatever the alcohol content is on the bottle, if it's above 14%, you get a 1% swing. So if they say it's 15.8 like this bottle, in theory, it could actually legally be 16.8, but they put 15.8 on the bottle. If it's below 14%, you get a one and a half swing. So if you, you know make a Pinot Noir and it only comes out to 12% alcohol, you can then actually say legally on the bottle that it's 13 and a half. Is, so. it, is it that or is it the opposite? No, it's it's once it's above 14, it's a 1% swing. Okay. If it's below it, it's one and a half. And I think spirits gives you a 1% as well. I'm, I'm not sure. Because what they consider over 14 um, is fortified. So even though port is, you know, 18 to 22%, they still get a 1% swing. It doesn't matter to them. Or it doesn't matter to the feds. <laughs> it mostly is based upon taxes, which I find interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know that in some states, we, you know, distributors will pay more taxes for wines that are higher alcohol. Yeah. And also you have to pay different taxes on sparkling wine versus still yeah. wine. So car- so our sparkling wine, we pay more, way more in taxes versus still. So in Arizona, and this is with an exemption, uh, for instance, if we have less than 14%, I think we pay like 17 cents on the gallon. 
And then if it's above it, it's like 50 something cents a gallon. But sparkling wine's like a dollar fifty a gallon. It's a crazy difference of pricing. And then right. spirits and beer gets into a whole different world. So I mean alcohol, Pay your tax, man. Uh, yeah, alcohol levels, but going back to the produced and bottled by, like to me, that's like the holy grail on a bottle of wine is when it says produced and bottled by. That means that they grew the fruit, they picked the fruit, they fermented the fruit, they aged it. I mean, they they did it all when it says produced. Yeah, as well as with a state on it. If it's a state, that's their grapes on their property. Um, produced and bottled can also be they decide to pick it from somebody else's vineyard. So if it says grown and bottled by, does that mean that they grew it, took it to someone else, and let somebody else ferment it and make it for them? I actually haven't seen grown and bottled. I just know... Maybe I'm just making that yeah, up. Maybe. That'd be cool, though. <laughs> yeah, grown and bottled by. No, yeah, because uh, produced and bottled is they made it. They did all the winemaking, blending, everything. It Basically, the second the grapes were on their property to the second it's in a bottle, it was theirs. A state means that it was their grapes. Cellared means that they bought something that somebody else yeah. already grew and already fermented, and then all they did was do a blend, bottle it, and then age it. Yeah, so that's the those are the two the two weird ones are cellared and vented. It's almost interchangeable. So cellared and vented could mean anything. It, they could have produced it and they just decided to use vintage as well if they want, just maybe because it sounds better. I don't know. It just depends on the winemaker. But cellared and bottle basically means somebody else made that wine and then they took it and they could have blended it themselves and they bottled it themselves. But it basically means that they did not make that wine, but they took it over the same way like um, like a Johnny Walker. They don't make the spirits. They buy it and blend it themselves to make you know Johnny Blue, Red, Black, whatever. Um, but a lot of producers, in some cases, they might have a guy that goes... Uh, excuse me, makes an amazing cab, amazing Zinfandel, but he can't make a Pinot to save his life. So he'll look at another winery and go, oh, hey, listen, I'll trade you. You know, you buy my Cabernet, I buy your Pinot, I put my label on that Pinot like it's mine, and you could put your uh, label on my cab like it's yours. So it's a very incestuous industry. All right, so the people that buy fruit or they buy, like they they, they don't grow it, but they just buy it. Mm -hmm. Or they buy the fruit and they crush it themselves, they make their own wine, and they bottled it. It's not produced. No, that is produced. Yeah. Because they bought it from a vineyard. That means they took the grapes, but once the grapes enter their facility, because the, the way that my understanding of the laws is, is grapes still is just technically a food. So then once they actually make the grapes, or excuse me, the wine in their tanks by crushing the grapes and everything, that's once you can start saying produced. So as long as you make it under your label, you can say produced as long as you actually physically made the wine. I wonder how many like I'm, law I'm, people I'm, out there I'm, like technically that's right. I'm gonna double, I, you know, I'm gonna double check this. Yeah, just to be sure. And I'd say tune in next episode, and we're gonna make sure that we have all the right facts for you on this one. <laughs> Do a because, little redaction because yeah, because I know that it's been a while since I took all my studies on this one, and this is something that. Uh, I definitely yeah. want to make sure I have all my facts right. And also, the laws do change consistently from time no, to time. No, they yeah. don't do that. Right? And they don't confuse anybody with uh, laws here either. I, I love the ones where uh, I've seen people who in New York will buy uh, Napa grapes. They'll buy the grapes, not even the juice, not the, not the pre-made wine. The grapes themselves bring it to New York, make it over there, and they can't say anything other than American-made. But yet, I could buy already made wine from Rutherford and put it in my bottle and say Rutherford, California on it. 
it's the the laws are so squirrely about what you can and cannot say and you know how much of this percentage has to be in that bottle from this state or from this region or from this AVA it could be very confusing trying to skirt laws and I, honestly telling a consumer is even more difficult I think a lot of the laws had good intentions but they just screwed up in the execution of them and I say this because... <laughs> it sounds if, like all government. But if they didn't have them, it, there would be a lot of kind of shady stuff also going on. I and mean, you see this over in other countries. Oh, all and, the time. And why some of these wine-growing regions have had to tighten the laws so tight because people in the wine business will do shady stuff. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you, have, if you run out of a one wine and you have somebody in, on the other end of the world that wants to get that wine, you're like, I'm out. Or I could just take my neighbor's wine and put it in that bottle. Exactly. I mean, I'm not saying I know anybody doing it, but it's got to happen. I mean, yeah. I, I know Spectator did a thing on a winery from Australia that pulled that, where they gave a, a, a kind of an introductory Shiraz, like a number seven or number eight in their top 100, and the wine was already sold out. And then all of a sudden, like three months later, there were stacks at every retailer of that vintage with big signs that say number six or number seven, top mm -hmm. 100 wines of the world, or number three or whatever it was. And the spectator went back and re-reviewed it. They checked lot numbers. Turned out it was a different wine. They got, yeah. they got busted. Well, how many times have you and I sat down with the wine that we knew it was 100% varietal or something, and we both drank it and went, no way. There's no way. Like, we had a Brunello one time. The second we poured it, it was purple-hued, so, and it was big enough to be a Syrah. And yeah, we're both that, sitting there looking at each other like, that's not Brunello. We're just, it's definitely a blend of something. And, and that, that was kind of a test we were doing with the Brunello scandal of yeah. This These were some Brunellos that were on the market right around the time of the scandal, and I happened to have them laying down, so I was actually able to compare some pre-scandal Brunellos against post-scandal Brunellos, and they're different they're wines. different wines. Yeah, absolutely. And not like different in the vintage was different. They were not the same wine. Yeah, people, people be like, uh, do you think there was a little Cabernet in there? I'm like, do you yeah. think there was any Sangiovese in there? <laughs> probably like a <laughs> splash at best. <laughs> like, did he just take like a Sangiovese like a uh, leaf and like <laughs> just wave, it, it, around, wave yeah. it over the top and like magic? One barrel of Sangiovese, <laughs> 200 of cab. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the nice thing is, I, obviously, the laws that they're putting around are great. I think what we're at now is really good. I'm sure there's room to tweak. But, you know, especially with Americans, most people tend to buy the grape more than, or excuse me, they'll buy the bottle more than they will the grape. They know their producer. They stick to it. I know people who are huge, you know, we'll use Silver Oak as an example. And the difference between 90s Silver Oak and now is extraordinarily different. You know, but they love it because that's what they've always had and they've they've gone through the changes. And, you know, it's it's nice to see that they'll tweak some laws in some ways to make it easier for consumers so that they know what they're getting in the bottle. But there's always going to be those very few producers out there who will do what they can to get around it for the most part. And it's extremely rare. So it's not something to worry about by any means. But it happens. So. So, I mean kind of just go back to this wine because I, I wanted to give this wine a little time to open up because it definitely needs to open we, up. We, we, we popped the cork and we turned the mics on and literally like we were firing up the mics while we were pouring the glass. So yeah. I, I really felt like it was a, it was worthwhile to spend the first half an hour talking before we truly dove into this wine. Yeah. I, I feel like it would be very unfair to talk about this wine being just opened and not opened up yet. No, but it's good because then we can give people an idea of the second they open that bottle too. If you let it sit here for the hour and a half time of talking, so they can get a feel for here's what it's like when we opened it. 
here's the middle, and then at the end, how different it changed. Now, if you were just drinking this at home with your family, would you decant it? No, I wouldn't. Well, really? I really not in this case. I really actually wouldn't. I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm I, see. I'm the opposite. I would totally 100 percent those under decanter. Yeah, and I figured you would too, because just what it is. But I actually enjoy this right out of the bottle because it was so concentrated fruit that I actually really enjoyed that. Um, it's definitely opening up a lot more now. Like I, it's sitting a foot from my face, and I can still smell it. There's some <laughs> really cool baking spices on it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you smell it, think think clove like yeah, that, that spice, cinnamon and clove cinnamon spice. and clove like it's got this like oatmeal raisin cookie like baking characteristic smell to See, it but to me an oatmeal raisin is a concentrated flavor so i was getting um I, I was getting a little raisin out of it but not from it being oxidized like actually just a raisin kind of smell like it smells uh so my grandma used to make this strawberry jam but she would let it get real you know um I hate using the term oxidized, but it's kind of like that where it would... Did she cook it? Almost like it was cooked. That's probably the right way to... Almost cooked, but not quite. So it was very sweet and very jammy. And I mean, you could... A little dab of it, and it it tasted like you had a pound in your mouth. (laughs) See, the nose to me right now is not coming... Like, when we poured it, originally it was coming off a little more uh, that that Mm -hmm. jam jar, Knott's Berry Farm in a bottle characteristic... Now to me, I'm getting crazy baking spices. Like to me, yeah, it's that the oak's coming out a lot more. It's that clove spice that's like really just grabbing me. And I, I use clove on two things, and I use it in my oatmeal raisin cookies, and I use it on my prime rib. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is the type of wine that would go exactly with a big steak, though. And oatmeal raisin and, cookies. And oatmeal raisin cookies. You know what? Honestly, I, I have. To, I really would like to have an oatmeal raisin cookie right now. And I try it with feel this. like it'd probably yeah. be delicious. They complement each other perfectly. Man, I used to bake them for people for Christmas all the time. That was like, you know, that's one of those things people either love them or hate them. Yeah. And people people who love chocolate chip cookies and they see what they think is a chocolate chip and they bite into one of your oatmeal raisins get so upset. <laughs> yes, you're totally correct on that. I think everybody loves uh, chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. But oatmeal raisin, you love them or hate them. Yeah. And if you're surprised by it, thinking it's a chocolate chip, you're really going to hate it. That was a technique I used to use when I was in real estate was you'd take a, a little bit of vanilla extract and you put it on a, a piece of like foil, put it in the oven at a low temperature, and the whole house smells like fresh baked cookies. Huh. And because it's, it's a comforting feel. That's interesting. When, when somebody when you when you walk at someone's house and you smell fresh baked cookies, it reminds you of like home. Yeah. Like, but then they were like, "Where's the cookies at?" And you're like, oh, "I don't have any. I don't have any cookies. <laughs> it just smells like cookies in here." <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the house I'm selling. I don't have cookies. Yeah, I have a box here from Costco. You could. You, I was just gonna say you could have just bought the Costco <laughs> ones and been like, "I just pre-made these." I always did that. It was such a great idea. <laughs> Speaking of shady <laughs> industry stuff, <laughs> Sale, <laughs> sales tech. Techniques. So apparently they do it in the housing industry too. I wasn't selling cookies. I was selling houses. <laughs> it's it's the same reason why when you go into like a casino in Vegas, it has a certain smell. Yeah, they're pumping all that oxygen and uh-huh. no windows or clocks. Yeah, it, it, it's it's appealing to like like I don't know your your olfactory system. Yeah, you know pleasant smells and things can jog memories. I mean, I bring I talk about. That's why I am with wine. I mean, maybe that's why I did it too, is because, you know, for me, when I smell wine, it sends off certain memories in my mind. 
and it brings me back to a moment of something else I did. If I was hanging out with a bunch of friends in the Russian River Valley, uh, you know, on the water drinking wines or drinking 2010 Pinots, 10 years later, I, I smell that 2010 Pinot. I'm like, oh, my God, that reminds me of hanging out with my friends yeah. that one time doing this. It's just like a song. Yeah. A sensory overload in a little bit. It's great when you can smell something or listen to something, and it takes you back to a memory, which is always nice. And this one, this that's why I kind of mentioned the strawberry jam from my grandma, because when I taste this now, as it's opening up, it tastes like a cherry pie or like a strawberry pie. It tastes like something I would have after Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner. It, it is getting a little strawberry jelly now in the nose, too. Yeah. Like, like, you're right. It's... I just caught it, and it reminds me a bit of like a strawberry candy almost in a way. Mm -hmm. It's like a little hint of that really super sweet strawberry. Yeah, and it definitely isn't a sweet wine, but my brain thinks of a sweetness just because of the jam. And, you know, there's not – I would say this is low tannin at best. I mean, there's definitely not a lot of tannin in it. There's very little acidity to it at well, so it's just a – it's a big concentrated wine. At least I'm not getting that. What are you thinking? No, I – it has so many nuances, you know. Often, when you drink a wine, they're very flat. They could be unilateral. They could be a little boring sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like you taste one thing. Like a lot of times, I tell people, I'm "Like, so what do you taste?" They're like, "Oh, berries," because <laughs> you're, you're tasting one thing, and that's all you're tasting. Yeah. Where, as this went in, and I tasted this, and I'm kind of dissecting it, it's taking me over a peak and a valley and a hill and around the corner, and there's a lot of nuances in in the finish that kind of take me a little while to process does have a long finish you know it's nice it's definitely lingering uh, quite a bit which is nice and there's a there's a creaminess almost like a like a strawberries and cream thing going on right now too all right like like when you think about you're talking about a wine being heavy you're talking about viscosity you also get that you know in the business it's malolactic fermentation it, it's the process in which the wine takes on this creamy characteristic and almost all, every red wine yeah, goes through it. I'm pretty sure I don't know any reds that don't. Though, though some red wines don't show it at all. In other red wines, you really kind of get it. That is really showing for me with this wine. Okay. It, it, it's got a a lingering creaminess in your mouth, like a weightiness. <laughs> you you just pulled a Dark Knight Joker move right there with that that like <laughs> that little like lick you lick your lips thing. <laughs> like I said, it, 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 it's a fantastic expression of Zimmendel because... My problem I have with American Zivendels is they're often too high alcohol and too jammy. Or pink. The ones that, yeah, the, the white Zivendels. <laughs> uh, why, why do they call white Zivendel not pink Zivendel, too? Because I probably only white people drink it or something. I don't know. <laughs> no. I, no, I know, I know a lot of people from every shape, size, color, it's everything. universally drink. delicious. <laughs> that, that is probably one of the most universal wines out there. Yeah, honestly, it's the one thing I've seen. If honestly, if it's a rose on a shelf, I'm assuming it's most likely made from a Zinfandel if it's from America. <laughs> Definitely in the blush boxed wine category. It's it's what it's California's second most planted grape, I believe, at this point. You know, and it's mostly used as filler. You know, if you need to bring up the alcohol content in one of your wines, use a little Zinfandel. You know, it's a ton of flavor All to right. it. Let me go back to my rant about Zinfandel. Oh, okay, go ahead. All right, so American Zinfandels from are often grown in very warm regions, very hot regions. Uh, you have places like Lodi and Paso Robles in the Central Coast that grow a lot of your Zivendels. With this, they become very high on alcohol, very jammy, very... And when I keep saying jammy, I literally... And you'll hear me say this a lot in the show, it's Knott's Berry Farm in a bottle. <laughs> and what I mean by that, it's literally like like 
not Skippy's peanut butter, but like yeah, jam, jam, jelly. So, and, and I don't like that. Welch's. Because to me, those flavors often are so powerful in one direction, there's no nuance. No. It, it's all jam and then nothing else. Yeah. Whereas what often with a Pinot Noir or a Cab, you can get that fruit, but then you get that tannin, that leather, that smoke, that tobacco, that, you know. Yeah, you know, one gra- vineyard's gra- different than graphite, another. Graphite, that lead. You'll get so many different things out of it where so many American Zinfandels are the same thing. They appeal to a lot of people. And there's a reason why it's one of the most planted grapes in California or in the United States. It's easy to drink. I'm I'm sure it's a very well-yielding grape overall as well. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm seeing right now is a change in the American Zinfandels. And I think a lot of the Zinfandel producers have realized that those wines have run a course. But people still want to – they love this wine, but they want it with food. And when you get those two high-alcohol ones, those ones that are over the top, they don't go well with food. It overpowers anything that you're having. Yeah. So, so I'm seeing in Central Coast and Paso Robles a lot of people planting Zivendel amongst their Primitivo or Primitivo amongst their Zivendel. Strike that and reverse it. <laughs> um, because it's keeping the alcohol levels down. It, it's adding a little more of an herbaceous, sometimes a little bit of a spice-driven characteristic to it. It's not just that jamminess. Yeah. Um, I think Napa Valley producers do a little more refined style of Zivendel. Especially because a decent amount of it tends to be coming off of a mountain at this point. But th- so many that come out of Lodi and so many that come out of Paso are just ginormous unilateral zins. Yeah. And and I like wine to take me on a journey. I I, <laughs> I I do. Like I don't I'm not just drinking this to get drunk. I'm drinking this to have fun with my friends and have a conversation and get to inspire me to think about what's going on. I mean there's and I'm having it with food. I'm having it with cheese. I'm having it with, you know, steak. Yeah. I'm having it with And you want it to change a little bit as you drink it over, you know, the hour long period. And going back to what you were talking about, Primitivo being planted in the vineyards for uh, listeners who don't know, Primitivo is the Italian word for Zinfandel. It's the exact same grape. Um, so I guess it'd be a good time as any to jump into a little history about Zinfandel. Um, for the most part, I, I hear it a lot when people come into the winery. They talk about um, Zinfandel <laughs> being the American-based grape. Like it's, you know, America's grape is Zinfandel. Uh, and that this is the home country of it. And it's actually not true. So there is no real indigenous grape variety of America. I've heard of a few like Mustang or Norton or some grapes like that. But Zinfandel comes from Italy, which came from Croatia. Yeah, v- v- Vitis Labrusco is the American grape varietal. It, it just doesn't produce good... Mm-mm. Wine is that muscadine? Is that that grape? I think Columbard for sure, or not well, Columbard? Well, well, uh, well, 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 well Vitis vinifera is is the wine producing yeah. varietal. Vitis lambrusco is the one that was native to us, and they've tried to do some crossbreeds, and they've tried to do. I forget what some of the crossbreeds are. That's probably some crazy. I don't, names. I don't think it's really turned out well, and I'm sure that they're still producing it in high quantity in like Missouri and <laughs> the Midwest. Definitely probably in the South. I mean the, the muscadine I've had in the Southwest or Southeast in this case, like a Georgia was a, uh, it's a very unique style of wine that people tend to like. <laughs> All right. So, so if, if an American goes over to Italy and they want to, they love American Zimmendel, should they get a Primitivo? Yeah, it's relatively the same if you get it from some places with, depending on obviously where it's growing, but it's definitely a little bit lighter in style. Uh, Most, if not all, the Primitivo in Italy uh, comes from Puglia, uh, so the heel of Italy. 
uh, in an area that you know really well uh, in Ceviche. It's some fantastic wines come out of that area. But those grapes even came over from Croatia. And so from the thing I learned about it was it's actually not even called Primitivo or Zinfandel. The actual grape is Tribidrag, and which is probably being butchered because it's a Croatian word. So it's probably not even remotely close to being pronounced right. Is but it, it basically means... Does it end in a C or a G? Ends in a G. Probably a hard G. <laughs> so kind of like, uh, you know, we had Dragic on our team. You pronounce that G real hard. So... Tribidraj. Yeah, just think I'm going to go with Tribidraj. Think of it as if it's the last name on a soccer jersey in the World <laughs> Cup. Tribidraj, then, and that's the case. <laughs> See? Yeah. I, I found the secret to getting John to pronounce things. Oh, that actually might be the Yeah, a soccer <laughs> reference or a sports <laughs> reference in this case. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, they, they were somewhere in like a very long time ago, and uh, people from, uh, you know, somewhere in whether it's Hungary or Austria had brought over a bunch of primitivo grapevines planted them throughout the country everybody just assumes obviously they were grapes and then somewhere in the 1960s um i believe it was an american who had went over was drinking over in italy as found primitivo grapes and wow this tastes just the same and then when he was in the vineyard was when oh wow these ripen early the leaf looks the same the grape clusters look the same because as a winemaker zinfandel is a weird grape to make i've had bunches come in where half the bunch isn't it doesn't look ripe i still have some green berries on it and i have some raisin berries on it and just it just does not ripen evenly it's a difficult grape to try and make consistent wine with and so eventually over a bunch of time and dna testing they found that primitivo in italy is zinfandel in america and from there there's a million directions that they've gone with it but in the end it's zinfandel is america's grape for the most part we have turned it into a crazy beast in this country it is true i think you know, when a European thinks American wine, they don't always think Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot because those are Bordeaux, Bordeaux varietals. Bordeaux, yeah. And I really do think that when a European thinks American wine and American cuisine, they think Zivendel hamburger. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a, probably a really good pairing of food is Zinfandel and a hamburger. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, there was the Fox Restaurant Group here opened up Zinburger. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Somebody's already done it. That's right. They did it. They uh, were on that one because they knew. We've been on track to do basically creating one business per episode. No. <laughs> Somebody already <laughs> Somebody did this already one. Somebody already got this one. <laughs> Darn. Dang it. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, that's actually, yeah, the one grape where I could imagine most people, when they assume what's the American grape, is Zinfandel. So if somebody likes uh, white Zinfandel, uh, would they like red Zinfandel? No. And I, I can tell you uh, the vast amount of times people walk in and go, oh, I'll take your Zinfandel, and we've poured it for them. They go, oh, I thought this was going to be a rosé or pink. And, oh, no, it's actually a red grape, and their minds are just blown. They're like, wait, what? I always assumed my whole life that when I got a Zinfandel, it was a rosé. So then, of course, they taste it, and it's not even in the ballpark because they expected a sweet wine. So, yeah, that, definitely, you're definitely going to be, it's going to be a sticker shock almost. Not sticker shock, but price-wise, but. So my mind's going kind of crazy, because as you've been talking about uh, this Croatian varietal that's the. Tribidraj. The, the, <laughs> I'm going to love saying that word. The, 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 the parent or, of American Zimandel. It makes sense because there's a growing region in Mexico that makes amazing wines. And, talking about the Baja? And they grow a lot of Zivendel down there. Really? Yep. But that And the people that I knew that were producing Zivendel had Eastern European heritage. Okay. So it, it really kind of makes sense. The, did you know the oldest Zivendel in America is grown in Baja? Really? Yeah. Did not know that. I do love, though, 
and I, I love the pictures of it, is the one thing I do love about Zinfandel is that people love that old vine. You know, they say, oh, old vines in, which, you know, legally doesn't mean anything on paper, but you'll go into some of these vineyards and it looks like something out of a straight haunted mansion Disney movie where it's just a gnarly looking tree. It's big, it's thick, it's not trellis, the branches are everywhere, and it produces some amazing wines. It's it's very Sleepy Hollow-ish. Sleepy like Hollow, that's what I was looking for. Yep, that's that's kind of what that reminds me of, like those old vine, those gnarly Zivendels. Gnarly Zin, yeah. But you know, Zin takes a long time to really mature. You know, uh, uh an analogy that I used <laughs> one time had to do with uh, uh, young Zinfandel vines are very often like young males. Uh, <laughs> when we're young, we are quite often all about quantity, 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 and not always about quality, quality, <laughs> quality. So a young Zinfandel vine will often overproduce fruit, and it really is just trying to grow, and it's trying to stick its vines in everyone else's business, <laughs> and it doesn't really care. It's trying to drop as many grapes as possible. Now, 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 many other grapes out there mature after 20 or 30 years, but oh, not Zinfandel. Nope. Z- Zinfandel, when it's 40, it's still acting a little crazy sometimes. It's still trying to stick itself in other people's business constantly. <laughs> and, and as it ages... Zivendel is the great variety that truly does develop the, the mentality of it's not all about quantity, it's about quality. Mm-hmm. Quite often, just like a young man growing up, finally discovering that it's, it's about quality. It's time to settle down a little bit. And it, it, it's a great reference that I've used talking about you know, teaching wine oh, classes. I think, I think and it's great. It is. <laughs> and you know, when you see old vine Zivendel on a bottle, there's no law that says what's old vine. A producer could put it on there for 60-year-old or 80-year-old. Typically, it's going to be 80s is kind of the the unspoken rule in the business is it has to be over 80 years old. Yeah. But you don't see that. You don't see old vine Chardonnay. No. Because 80-year-old Chardonnay is like, I, I have already been there, done that, so, I'm done. Yeah, and, and it's very rare, but I do know old vines, certain grapes do exist. I know there's definitely some vineyards out there that have the old vine Chard, the old vine Malbec, the old vine uh, Cabernet or something cool. Because you know it's geeky, it's cool, probably do some fun wine because they know it. But you're not going to get that on a consistent level. You got a new vine. But that old vine's in. Super cool to have, especially because it only puts out, like you were saying, you know, just a couple bunches at a time. Yeah, as it ages, it produces less fruit, but more intense fruit. And and when I say more intense, like really more nuanced, less less jammy, less mm-hmm. less. You get lower alcohols. The old vine zins that I've had, and the ones that are truly like over hundred year old vines, are often fourteen, fourteen five. You know, yeah, thirteen. It keeps that alcohol a little bit lower. Yep. Yeah, and there's such a pleasure to drink too because, you know, that bottle that you had from an old vines in, it probably took that one vine just produced that one bottle. God, imagine being a producer and like losing one of the vines that like you've like you you have rows. You look at them every single year. Your great grandfather planted, yeah, but one of those vines dies in the middle of the row for some reason, and it, you just got to be like. Yeah, and tearing it up is probably not the easiest thing ever because it's got to affect everything around it. Oh. That root system goes down forever in a day. That's why there's pre-phylloxera vines grown in some areas. Uh, that's why, you know, in Oregon, there's pre-phylloxera vines because the roots go so deep, they go below phylloxera. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I never knew that. <laughs> yep. Actually, so we were talking about the Canary Islands. Yeah. So I, I was uh, looking up some random notes and stuff like that and just kind of looking up, and one of the first articles that popped up was Canary Island wine. Hey, I can grow wine everywhere. <laughs> you could grow wine pretty much anywhere. Yeah. 
Canary Island one is cool because I've seen a few where, if I'm not mistaken, this is the place where they dig down and form like a bowl, and the grapevines are in this little bowl to protect itself from the heat or the sun in some cases. I've seen one winery that did that. I thought it was such a cool unique little thing i'd love to see what those wines would end up being like i mean you got to think anything grown in an island's got to be very skewed towards volcanic soil yeah it's got to be all <laughs> I mean, volcanic soil pretty much yeah so but uh, a lot of the varietals are growing there are like portuguese type varietals a lot of them are, are are their own but they have just like the the primitivo and the zivendel they have dna ties to portugal and spain on a lot yeah. of their stuff but they're all uh no phylloxera yeah which is kind of crazy. There's, there's, that there are countries out there that still have not seen and have no phylloxera. And for those of you who don't know what phylloxera is, it's this little itty bitty louse, this little bitty like mite, just this bug. And all it does is it eats the root system of the vine so that it basically bleeds the sap out and it eventually kills the vine. And, uh, it's spread like crazy throughout the world, and it's devastating to a vineyard. And as far as I know, the few places that don't have it are high mountain high mountainous areas i also said that right because they don't survive after a certain altitude and then there's a couple places where i think even chile completely doesn't have it because their import laws are so strict they don't allow certain things in and out that can carry it and i uh, I, I, I think well well chile is naturally resistant to it because i think the mountainous soils and whatnot uh that's the reason why they were settled by all the europeans trying to get out of france and germany and spain and Italy, and trying to get away from the phylloxera. So they took their clippings to Chile and Argentina, trying to escape it. Yeah, and speaking of different, you know, vines that people didn't realize they had, um, you know, Carmenere over there, everybody thought was Merlot for the longest time. Turned out it was a surviving Carmenere grape. Yeah. Uh, it, it, over the next 30, 40 years, there's going to be a lot of this going on. Um, yeah, people finding the same grape with different names. Yeah, so. they're going to, through all the DNA testing and everything, there's... I feel like we know so little about all these grapes. Yeah. And for the super geeky people out there, there's a grape called uh, Plavic Mali, which is also a Croatian grape. So Plavic Mali or something. I, again, pronounce them terribly. And uh, the owner of Gurgic Hill, so Mike Gurgic was a Croatian. Uh, I believe he was born there, but, you know, he's a California, Croatian Californian guy. And he tried to tell everybody that Plavic Molly was the same as Zinfandel for the longest time. And it turns out it wasn't true. They did a DNA test on it, and it's not the same varietal. It's within the same parent lineage, they believe, but it's not the same grape. But it's close. So that was something different. Because I know I, I've had Gurgich Hills a million times, and I love their Zinfandel. But I think for a while, they had that Plavic Molly thing saying it was in, and it's not. It's their clippings, and it turned out it's just Plavic Molly. Man, I haven't had their Zin in forever. I've had their, their Chardonnay is fantastic, though. They make they just make great great wine overall. They're they're one of the few producers from California that I will give them props for their Chardonnay. Yeah, you know I always say that I don't like Chardonnay, but I love Burgundy. They they I could be confused and almost guess that they make Chablis. That's really good. That's a, to me that's a, that'd be a huge compliment. Yeah. I love Chablis wines. We should taste their Chardonnay sometime in the show. Yeah, we'll do a Char- we'll do a few. I feel like Chardonnay, Cabernet, and a couple other Pinot Noir for sure. We'll do many different ones tasting. I can't wait to do Nebbiolo ones because every vineyard is going to be extremely different. All right, so technically this is episode five? four. Four. So episode five. So we got to have milestone episodes. So five, ten, twenty-five, fifty, hundred. I like it. So. Uh, Maybe we'll do Napa Mountain on the next bu- one. No, let's blind taste each other. 
All right, yeah, we'll do a blind so, taste. So, on so, it. so, 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 the next episode, you bring a bottle, anything you want. And you're gonna brown bag it before you show up. Doesn't matter what it is. I don't red, care white, what. Right, red, red, white, blue, green. You could bring more than one if you want, but I prefer just one. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, we know what happens to me after a few glasses of wine in the show, <laughs> <laughs> aka referred to episode three, <laughs> the, yeah. and, and then episode five, episode seven, every, 10, every 15, 25, yeah. 30. The, there's a reason why it's called odd numbered episodes because <laughs> those are the ones that Damien's had a little too much, probably. Yeah, <laughs> so. So yeah, we'll do that on that, and then yeah, the Barola ones. But um, yeah, we'll save Barolas. We'll save some verticals. We have so much wine to drink over yeah. the next forty years together. We'll as always friends. bring some fun information towards. But I think towards each episode, I, I, I think five would be a, a great way to start the blind taste and break it down and have fun with it. And yeah, I agree. And then by ten, we'll have a guest on. Okay, I like that. Yeah, we'll have some fun foodies, other wine geek people, the occasional uh, random person. Yeah, you know, I, I might get. Guess on before then, but I think I think that's a good milestone right there. I think ten we have on maybe like an iconic person. Like, all right, you're our first guest. Are you <laughs> are you ready for this? We brought Everclear <laughs> and grain alcohol for this episode. You, you know we got to give them Zima. Oh. <laughs> be, yeah, at the end of every episode, we should just ice everybody totally. that comes bl- in here. No, you just blind taste them Zima. <laughs> let them let them try and guess what it is. Blind taste Zima, <laughs> Smirnoff Ice, any of those other things in a bottle like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, we're gonna have some awful episodes. So, no, have you uh, tried this again? By the way, it's changing even more now. <laughs> All right, so uh, Napa Valley Zinfandel Scarlet. It, you ever had like a Zinfandel or Primitivo that was just like, wow, that was so crazy? It you couldn't even imagine it was the same thing. You know, I, I have not been exposed to too many, and a lot of the times, if you go to Napa Valley. Or to certain areas that are producing cabs in, they rush you through the zin sometimes. Yeah, especially I think when they find out you're a, a wine professional, they're like, "Oh, here, try my zin. Oh, here's my cabernet." Yeah, it almost—it's <laughs> funny you say that because the last time I was at, I was at this one winery, and they did that. They kind of—they were like, "Oh yeah, here's our Zinfandel," and they really weren't upbeat about. It. They're like, "Well, it's on the outskirts of our vineyard. It's like the last two rows. We just blend it, but we make one barrel for fun for everybody." Like it was almost like a lack of pride in it, and honestly. It wasn't bad, but man, they used a ton of American oak on it. And maybe it was just because it was new, but it's one thing I've noticed about Zinfandel is there's a lot of American oak. It's just thrown on the front of it for a while, and that's all you can kind of taste. This one doesn't, you know, it's got some clove and bake spice to it, but it's not crazy oaky by any means, which is refreshing. No, I, I, I think the, 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 the jamminess, and as you say, the bigness of this wine is it really has absorbed the oak well, and it's integrated so well into the wine that it's very drinkable. Um, what would you have this with? This would be my steak wine. This would be a good, like, peppercorn steak even, um, big T-bone, you know, not even something that you would put a ton of spices on. Just kind of get a real nice piece of steak, maybe a little of olive oil, very light seasoning. And honestly, I think this is one of those wines that – it's more of the food would complement the wine than the other way around. If you, if that makes sense to you, like if you have a really good thing of food, like a nice dish and then the wine pairs so nicely with it. I think this is one of those wines where you kind of, if you bring a light dish to the table, it's the wine's just going to dominate. It's going to be terrible. You almost need a huge chunk of meat to match with this or apparently oatmeal raisin cookies, grilled steak or braised meat. I'm going with grilled. Yeah. 
Mostly because I don't know what braised meat is right now. Sh- short ribs. Oh, okay. Well, in that case. Slow, slow cooked, like pot roast. Oh, like, like, like a brisket or something yeah, like that? Yeah, like roast, slow roasted, like Barbecue. hearty. Yeah. Like that, that's very different than a steak on a grill that's medium rare is very different than like slow braised short ribs. Yeah. In this case, honestly, I even think barbecue would be the right thing for this wine. What I'm thinking, honestly, over steak, because I want a little more acid, I think, in something that's a little fattier, especially because you think... Often, you know, wine professionals say, oh, pair this with steak. Well, are, there are so many types of steak out there. Uh, a, a sirloin is very different than a tri-tip, which is completely different than a filet, which yeah. is different. They, they have different fat contents. They have different flavor contents. For me, I this doesn't necessarily have the zippiness that I would want with a fattier meat. And you're right. I don't want this with short ribs necessarily off the top of my head because they're this. Short ribs, no, are, short ribs are rich. Yeah. When you eat short ribs, you get like a fattiness in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And I think that the richness of this wine, with just it's throwing fat on fat. You know, it's not going to work. For me, I'm thinking something super lean. I'm going to say game meats. This would just crush it with. You're talking I'm like gonna, elk? Rabbit? Ven- venison? Venison. Ooh. Like a nice lean steak. Ostrich. Yeah, a, I could see a, that. A, a super lean red meat that's grilled. What would you consider wild boar? Is that considered lean or is that real fatty and yeah. rich? Because I had wild boar recently and it was absolutely delicious, but the it was very overpowering. Now, now did, you, did, did you have it slow roasted like a carnitas or did you have it ground up like a burger? Patty. I, ter- I, I formed them into patties and did it on a skillet with some like seasoning to it. So I think if it was on a grill, it'd be very different. I think, or even slow roasted. Because really, I mean, pork's a hybrid. I mean, honestly, with pork, you can go, because wild boar is a pork. Though yeah. To me, it's a little bit more of a gamey or a little more of a distinct flavor. I want something with that, though, with also acid. Okay. I mean, I'm, I, you know me, I always go right to Italy. So, of course, I'm thinking wild Italy. boar. I think Cingale. I think Sangiovese. <laughs> is so freaking good. Yeah, that's, that's what I think. I think I think like a Cingale ragu yeah. with like With like truffle and stuff like that. Barolo, or sorry, not Barolo, but Brunello, uh, Vino Noble. Something, a, a high acid red grape goes great with well fatty with fattier meat. foods. Yeah. This to me is there's a richness to this wine. It doesn't have the acid, so I want it with a leaner meat. Yeah. If that or honestly, think about this with like uh like a tuna tataki. I mean, honestly, could you even in this place go with like a red sauce, so- like an Italian red sauce with uh, not a pasta, but like over like almost like I don't want to say chicken parm, but I don't know, because then you could get the acid from that. There was a... Uh, this is this is a very... Honestly, if somebody asked me, and I, obviously we're doing this right now, but pairing this with a food would almost be a little difficult, but you know the area you're going for. The gamey meat, the big, giant steak. I think that's the area to hover around with something like this. Because honestly, drinking... This would not be a wine, and this is just me, and, and my dad would preach differently. He would drink this by the glass by himself, because he, he loves scotches like this. So well, My first rule of wine is don't ever believe me. Believe yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's every time somebody goes, what wine do you like? I say, it doesn't matter. Drink the wine that you like, because that's all that matters. I'm just here to guide you in a direction of something that you want, especially at the winery. I love I love talking to people there and telling people, hey, you know, what do you like? Oh, I like this. Cool. We'll branch a little different to try something. But in the end, you know, we'll settle on something that you want to drink, because that's all that matters. I mean, just because a sommelier says that you should have this wine with your roasted ostrich tonight. 
My mom shows up. You know what she wants? Pinot Grigio with ice. White oh, that's my wh- mom. Wh- wh- white Zinfandel. White Zinfandel. Pink and sweet. Pink and sweet. You know, I mean, so at the end of the day, drink, drink what you like. Don't drink what we recommend. I mean, th- this is just trying to open your eyes. We're just trying to, like, yeah. get you to think outside maybe the box. And for me... <laughs> think outside the box, wine. So, so there was a... That's uh, a great t-shirt, by the way. Think outside the box. Yeah. Little small wine at the bottom of it. You're I, welcome I, for whoever's out there. That business idea. Yeah. <laughs> it just happened. So, uh, Spectator recently posed a question to a whole bunch of uh, sommeliers that uh, they said, what is one of the against the rules wine pairing that you enjoy? Now, there's there's things like don't pair this with this, don't pair this with that, don't ever pair wine with certain food things. They say don't pair wine with like artichokes, don't pair wine with Ugh. orange juice or toothpaste or certain things like that. You know what's but, weird? And I'm gonna sorry to interrupt on this one, but they say don't pair wine with artichokes, but you know what goes great with asparagus is a good Gruner vet liner because that is the weirdest combination of things and I had one and it was amazing. So you just said you know how they say don't pair wine with artichokes, and then you said asparagus. <laughs> yeah, but in my mind, it's almost the, the same weird thing. Th- th- those are the two wine or two food items that are on the category of difficult to pair with, though. Yeah. So, th- you know, often, you know, when we go out, you know, we we dine at a local restaurant, it's a BYOB, and we don't say have wine A with course A, don't have wine B with course B. We open every wine and have every wine with every course because often the wine you don't think is going to pair well with a course turns out to be the magical pairing. Yeah. And you definitely open that up, and uh, and I we I can't remember what we were eating. We were at Atlas, um, and we had I had a duck. That's what it was. I was eating duck with like this, you know, really kind of rich sauce to it, and I think it was like a fatty, like a fatty duck sauce, basically. And it was the weirdest thing that I had ever had paired for it. Um, and I think it ended up being, you know, we had the Nebbiolo, we had a Brunello, and then we had a really weird Greek wine that got added into the mix out of nowhere. And it was honestly the perfect wine for it. And it's amazing how different styles of wines just go with your palate. Because you're right, you could have the perfect wine. You could have the best Riesling with a really nice Thai food, but for some reason, just in a weird moment, Syrah goes perfectly with something spicy, even though it's not supposed to be something you pair together. So one of the craziest pairings I ever had, uh, a chef paired the biggest, most aggressive petite Syrah I've ever had. The Parker Review said, lay this down for 50 years and then we'll talk. <laughs> like, okay. I, I mean, rare. how do you even lay a petite Syrah? I, I can't. I love petite Syrah because I love my mouth turning black and being coated in tannin and torn apart. And it's delicious, but I can't. This it's thing, like a Sagrantino. How do you pair that with anything and so, even age it? So this thing was a monster of a petite Syrah. And the chef paired it with the most delicate, deconstructed, whipped ricotta dessert I've ever seen. It was his version of a deconstructed cheesecake. It was like a little wispy, like a uh, graham cracker thing with like a little whipped ricotta on it. It so his vision was that this wine is so big, so jammy, so rich that this is the, the compote fruit on top of the cheesecake. So he made this little delicate dessert with this big clunky wine, and I was like, "This is not going to work. This could be horrible. This could be horrible." It was. 
This was 10 years ago. I'm still talking about it today. It was, to me, one of the most magical pairings because it was so the opposite of anything I thought. By the way, the winemaker hated it. He, he, <laughs> he thought it was like one of the worst pairings <laughs> ever. That's he funny. He's so insulted it. by that. He was. <laughs> he was not happy with it. It's funny you say that because this is um, – this is I could see this being paired with the right dessert, like a strawberry cheesecake. Cheesecake. Or um, – Man, what did we have that one time where it was a strawberry? It was like a strawberry jam combo kind of thing put together. This could definitely be along those lines where it's weird. You're having a dessert wine, but it's a Zinfandel from Rutherford. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I love those opposites. I often talk about spicy food with sweet wines. I mean, but that's kind of become a classic pairing in a way because people realize Thai food and... Thai food and Riesling. Riesling and goes, 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 goes great together. Yeah. You know, so th- it was interesting. I was reading this article, and they were talking to master sommeliers and wine directors. One person brought up uh, white wine with cheese. And I was like, that actually kind of makes sense, because often you think about it, when we have cheese often, we're having red wine with it. Often it's the it's our dessert course. Yeah. We go out to dinner, we, we get cheese a lot for dessert. What are we having at the end of the night? Either port. Red wine. Yeah, it's always red wine. Yeah. Or some port that we draw on the table with all the sediment. <laughs> yeah. I refer you to... Uh, <laughs> The pictures on social media for that we'll one. We'll put those up one day on there. All the fa- happy faces we were drawing with but all the sediment. Every picture I put up was um, screened to be PG. Because <laughs> the, the finger the painting other, got a little out of control. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Thank so, God we were the last people there at the end oh of the night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, but uh, another one that they brought up that was interesting was rosé with steak. All right. Like, are we talking a sweet rosé? Are we talking nope. like a they, Provence? They, they, this was, this, these were just one of those random questions that they posed to sommeliers. Said, hey, what is, what is an against-the-rule pairing that you enjoy? Gruner, Vetliner, and asparagus. That's mine. Gruner, Gruner and asparagus. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but that combination for some reason is awesome. Or, you know, if you really want to mess with yourself, and I don't know what it was, but I really enjoyed it. I had an Australian Shiraz that was high enough alcohol to be considered a liquor and i was sitting outside in 115 degree weather while me and a few friends were just on the patio hanging out in the middle of summer a few years back and it was delicious i think we were sweating the wine by the end of it but still it was really good yeah i mean when it comes to food and wine pairs just try everything like if you're having friends over don't open up one wine for course one one wine for course two open up every wine for every course give everybody four glasses and have fun yeah all of a sudden, like, read old sales start going through the roof. Like, what the? <laughs> yeah. What is up with everybody doing this? And solo cups, too, because why not experiment with that? <laughs> it, I like it the way it opened up, but uh, I drink wine too fast out of a solo cup. Yeah. I think it's the one thing. There's a difference of if you hold a glass, like, you know, by the stem, by the base, versus if you get your whole hand. I'd like to see this theory, by the way, as I'm making this up in my head. If holding a glass with your whole hand, like a solo cup, think about how you would hold a solo cup or a pint glass, changes how you drink versus a wine glass when you grab the stem and you swirl it and you hold it or maybe the top and swing it around a little bit. But for the most part, you're not really holding your glass. You're not holding the glass at all. It's either on the table, therefore it's not in your hand, versus a solo cup or a pint glass usually stays in your hand no matter where you go. You always walk around with it and whatnot. True. But it's like it's almost like people who smoke. It's not always necessarily the fact that they smoke. It's that habit of constantly, you know, bringing something to your mouth to smoke. Yeah, I remember talking to friends that used to smoke. I was like, "Why do you smoke?" They're like, "It's something to do." Yeah, something to do. And it's it's so weird. But I mean, I smoked for a short period of time, and it. I get it. Like you you sit at a bar. It was you have a free hand. You're like, I had to have a cigarette. What do I do with it? It was just yeah. something to do. I mean, I just for the last. 
hour and a half just tore up this capsule because I need something to do with my hand. <laughs> I, I've done it the last four podcasts. Yeah, I just I need something like I was twirling this little thing. Look, I wrapped that in the foil. It's something to do. That's <laughs> so weird. So it's funny how many uh, celebrities are getting into wine now. Yeah, I've noticed a lot. So I'm bummed about it. I'm, it's good because they're promoting it, but it's bad because they're just slap. Some of them are just slapping their name on it, or they just own a vineyard and they're not really doing it. That's one thing I've noticed. There's a lot less people jumping onto a name, um, saying, "Oh, this is what I drink," versus "This is my wine," or "This is my label." Actually, like, it's not even my winery. It's it's they made a label for themselves. I mean, I mean, Maynard poured blood, sweat, and tears into his vineyards in Arizona. Absolutely. And, and he's he's making the wine. It's his wine. Mm-hmm. Whereas True Barrymore is not doing... She's not pumping anything over anything. She's not punching down any cap. She's not picking a grape. Yeah. She's not planting a vine. She's like... I mean, I, didn't, I saw Danica Patrick recently. She bought a vineyard and winery, so I think she'll put in the time and work. But I saw... Uh, who was it? Gabriel Union, you know, Dwayne Wade's wife. So they have Wade Cellars now. Right. Now, they, they partnered with Paul Meyer. Was that where it was yeah, from? Up in Napa yeah. Valley. And I love Palmyre. That's they make some great wines. But I'm assuming somebody's making it for them and they're attaching a label to it. And this oh. is assumption. I'm not, you know, trying to say that what they're doing isn't awesome, but there's that's one thing that I've noticed is a lot of really, really rich people doesn't necessarily have to do with celebrities, but a lot of rich people are just buying up wineries or labels and assuming that it's just all going to work out and they're going to make money from it. Well, it's one reason I respect Rich Aurelia because he's one of the guys like Richie, Dave Roberts. Those guys wanted to learn how to make wine and they had a bunch of people that said, I'll produce wine, put your name on it. We'll put a baseball on it. We'll, we'll sell it like, you know, mm-hmm. home run red, like no problem. And he's like, no, like I want to make wine. And so finally he found something that was, would let him actually get down and dirty and make wine. Is that me Sueños? Yeah, yeah, I believe it was uh, Rolando. Rolando. And so they've leased some certain properties. But he makes his wine, I believe, yeah. still at uh, Misueño's Winery. Yeah. But they don't just make the wine and put their label on it. No, they, they actually make the they wine. They do it. They do all the work. That's why, honestly, Maynard's such a cool dude because uh, he took the time to find an area. It wasn't even a known area. It didn't almost have anything in that area. He went here and said, you know what? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make something of it. And whatever comes out... That's what nature gave me. These are the grapes I'm going to produce, and we're going to go from here and see what happens. Versus somebody comes in and goes, oh, that's already a well-known vineyard, winery. I'm just going to buy it and put my name to it. Did you ever see his movie? Blood into Wine? Yeah. I just watched that. I don't know. I'm not kidding. A week or two ago. I finally actually sat down and watched it. It's good. You know what? It's really good because you could tell it was written... From the heart, yeah. like from his mind, and from his unique personality. Yeah, it was. It wasn't some like guy who slid a script underneath a, like a, a bathroom stall or something like that, trying to make a movie. Like it, it, it's a unique movie, but you know what? It gives a lot of insight to what he did, and I thought it was amazing. Yeah. It's funny you say because you know one of the big things with Arizona grapes is a uh, Zinfandel looks like it's one of those grapes that could do really well out here once we get it rocking and rolling nicely. So we'll see how Zin, Syrah, and I hope it does well because I love this great Malvasia. I think a Malvasia would be a great white wine. Don't it, you Don't you correct me. I know you're looking like you want to correct me. Is that close to Malvasia? Oh, God, I hate you. Right <laughs> now auditioning for hosts that don't correct my terrible speaking. Actually, which one is <laughs> it? I don't know. I don't even know. I'm going with Malvasia. <laughs> I think it depends on what hemisphere you're from or what part of the world you're from. Well, what, okay, so what is it in Italy? They say the middle of Valhard, Malvasia. 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 Mal- yeah. You know, whatever. It's a great white grape that should be fantastic, and hopefully it does 
great well, idea. Well, the Italians always enunciate the first symbol hard or the first syllable hard. Is it the first syllable? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Subaru. Yeah. I yeah. remember that. Subaru. Subaru. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a Subaru. It's Barolo. a Barolo. Barolo. Sangiovese. Yeah. You always start out hard and it's just like work your way down. Uh, phrasing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I will say this this is a. Zivendel that could be drank as a cocktail. I typically <laughs> that's actually a really good way of putting that. Yeah, you know, because because some there's some wines you need food. I'll be honest. Sangiovese is a wine that needs food. There are certain things that there's characteristics in that wine that could turn people off if you have it without some sort of fatty cuisine with it, without some cheese, without something yeah. because the it's it the, the acid could be a little aggressive to some people. There are some of the best wines. The best things you could pair is not just your friends, but you're at a food will compliment that for like a Barolo would. But yeah, this is definitely something that doesn't need food. I I would definitely. I think you nailed that. Uh, drink it like a cocktail, almost. You know, sip on it, enjoy it, let it kind of open up a little bit. No need to pound it. I don't think you can. But um. I'm, I, this was my Zinfandel that got me onto Zins. That's why I wanted to open it. I always, those will be my milestone kind of moments is when I open up a bottle that I still have that got me onto those wines. And in some cases, there's a few cheap cabs or some cheap uh, Malbec out there that got me onto that. But this was the first Zinfandel that made me go, oh, Zinfandel is not this unilateral you know, just kind of generically made, mass-produced, whatever wine that if I don't really want anything in the menu, I'll just snag this in and just drink wine. So I, I'm, I was happy with these guys and what they did. So to you guys over at McGaw Family, the Scarlet Wines are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we'll totally take uh, samples or anytime you want to send them. Yeah, oh, I mean, we'll take <laughs> everything all the time you want. No, I, I honestly, and, and something they've done really, really amazing is put a it's great... A beautiful label. Yeah, they put great packaging on it, you know? Yeah. So so many people make great wine, and they put it in a cheap package, or typically, I'm not a big fan of gloss labels. This is a matte finish. It does have a little, like, gold foil that to gold it. gold looks cool. But, but the gold foil looks awesome on it, like, but it's not glossy. Like, once you get glossy, sometimes you end up looking kind of cheesy. You look, like, comic bookish a little yeah. bit. But yeah, no, they they've done a really great job on the the packaging on this. Um, do they even distribute this around the country? Because I've I've only seen this at like one or two wine shops, and I don't know if they make enough to mass do it. I know their cab is definitely out there for a few places. Um, Are their cabs called Scarlet? Also, it's all Scarlet. I think their Sauve Blanc is the only one that's not. I think it's under another label, and I can picture it, but I can't remember what it is. It's like a numbered thing, but yeah, they're. Petit Verdot is an all-purple label. Their cab is the same white, but it's red instead of gold. And then they just, within the last couple of years, released their black label, Scarlet. It's like their reserve cab. So I'm sure at some point, I've got most of them, except for um, the Saw Blanc. Uh, like when we do a cab one, maybe we'll break one out. But we have so many more to do. But yeah, just want to do the Zinfandel and bring a little history to some people out there. You know, learn that Tribadrage is the... Uh, original grape name for it and no say it like a say it like a soccer player tribidrage yeah that, that's what i'm going <laughs> with tribidrag tribidrage tribidrage somewhere in there is the right spelling meanwhile there's gonna be one croatian person out there shaking his head like i'm never listening to this idiot again <laughs> god yeah and today on spilling the truth jonathan still can't pronounce anything appropriately so yeah so on that on my very last sip this is outstandingly good zen it's a great one to try um i definitely think it'll open the light to people on napa valley zinfandel yeah i totally recommend it it's awesome like i am not a zinfandel fan yeah i am 
but I will recommend this to anybody. It's killer. So A plus wine. So ne- next episode, uh, we are going to do some blind tasting. Blind tasting. We're going to try and guess what's in the bottle and completely embarrass ourselves. Yep. So <laughs> see, what, see what happens. Sounds fantastic. Can't right, wait. Thanks for the wine. All right, guys. Right. Everybody take care. Take care.